This episode of Extra Serving is sponsored by Belgioioso Cheese. Belgioioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioioso, every cheese is a specialty. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Extra Serving, a podcast by Nations Restaurant News. I am your host, Holly Petrie, here with this week's episode, and I am joined by two of my colleagues for a very special edition. Is this Sam. the point where you say, do you tell us to introduce ourselves? Or Yes, introduce uh, yourself now, Sam. Flow into it. I, I, was, <laughs> I thought that was the flow. Oh, wow. No, I think we should just let that silence sit. Now, I am Sam Okas. I'm the editor-in-chief of NRN, Nation's Restaurant News. Brett, you go. Uh, I'm Brett Thorne. I'm senior food and beverage editor of Nation's Restaurant News, and I'm so glad to be talking to my friends and colleagues. Holly, and I know. Sam. This is fun. Yeah, I'm glad it's our first time doing it, as everybody I'm sure will be able to tell, but also quite fun to be able to have a real conversation, uh, kind of face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Essentially, it's I mean, isn't this face to face for all of us now? Right. I mean, we've been doing the virtual calls for almost a year and a half, and I feel like I'm more comfortable with this than I am with in-person contact. Well, you know, since I've been vaccinated since uh, mid-April because hooray for comorbidities, I've been I've been in a lot of bars lately and it's different. It's better to yes. hang out with with humans face to face and uh, doing it a lot. And, Brett, uh, the humans I spend a lot of time with are four and two, and so I don't know what normal right, interaction right. looks like. Well, yeah, mine, mine are, you know, sometimes drunk restaurant workers, so. Well, who act like four and two-year-olds. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah I, 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 a lot of parents tell me that, that toddlers are kind of like little drunks. You know, they just act on impulse and uh, do whatever they want. Unless I have said on multiple occasions to my wife, is he drunk? about my two-year-old son specifically because he acts drunk sometimes. He legitimately does things that I just, I'm like, okay, yeah, you broke into the liquor cabinet. So great, call child services. And you can't you can't ban them. 20s too, that's also quite fun. Drunk men in their late 20s are a real, real toddler-like crowd. Uh, they may be yes, worse absolutely. than toddlers. So you may have the upper hand there, Sam. That's true. Should we tie that into restaurants somehow? We are talking about alcohol, so food and beverage. We got the beverage check. We're good Correct. with restaurants. We talk about them all the time, but we can actually get started and talk about what we came here to talk about other than just uh, gossiping and hanging out. Can I talk about my lunch a little bit first? Yeah. I, I got, I'm a little groggy because Popeye sent me their chicken nuggets, which the rest of the world isn't going to have until July 27th, but they sent them to me today with a bunch of little sauces and a split of Prosecco, which I have not drunk yet. We should save that for later. Yes, exactly. Uh, and well, so I'm a little. Here's my I'm question, little, though. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where did this? Did they? So it's not available yet in their restaurants, but they had a restaurant near you, just like cook them up special. Is that what's going on? Uh, yes. Yes, there is. I is, have ordered from the Popeyes just on the other side of Prospect Park for me, uh, and this was a special delivery by a gentleman with a, say, large box with a little container of chicken nuggets and six different dipping sauces, and then a separate aluminum can with Popeyes on it for me to chill my Prosecco in. 
and the Prosecco is now in the fridge. Oh. Don't know what to do with the little the little can. Oh, so you didn't it's drink bucket. the Prosecco with the nuggets to get the full experience. I, although I think that Prosecco and nuggets would go together really well. During the day, I try to maintain sobriety because it's hard to get stuff done if I'm if I've had anything to drink. Brett, you have the biggest excuse of anyone on our team to be drunk in the middle of the day because you're the culinary guy. You're the food and beverage guy. So if people send you something, you can test it and say that it is in, in the name of work. So do we get to hear how the nuggets were? Oh, yeah, they, you know, they were they were good. They there was like a lot of kind of extra breading kind of rolling off the sides of them. But the breading itself was was thin and crisp. And it's uh, sort of a nice uh, miniature replica of the the Popeye sandwich that broke the internet and made Popeye's however many tens of million dollars they've made on selling chicken sandwiches. Guys, I got to tell you, I have a dirty little secret, which is that I um, I have not had the Popeye's chicken sandwich, and it's been out almost two years, and I have written about it a lot. And I have never, I've never tried it. My closest Popeyes was 25 minutes away. They just built one 10 minutes from me. And so I think I should probably finally go try this darn sandwich. Have you had a Big Mac? Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, a long time ago, but yeah. You know, I don't know if I should tell you this secret, but our publisher, Sarah Lockyer, has never had a Big Mac. Interesting. That's a, like, how do you just get through life without ever having a Big Mac? I've never had either of these sandwiches, so Holly, I've never had you a in man. charge of this podcast. <laughs> Why I, are you even on this team? Do you like food? <laughs> you fit into the beverage equation. You just like the beverage part of food and beverage. Hey, if I was getting beverages in the midday, trust me, I'd be drinking them all the time. You know, the, uh, the Big Mac, I think, is an important American culinary experience that you should try. Well, another important culinary experience I have never had, but that there was this big TikTok thing about was the in and out chicken sandwich. Did you guys see that this week? No, no, I don't. I, I, yeah, no? I deleted the app. It kept, they, it kept. They think that it could be a a um. They think that it could be an imitation, but there's this thing going around on TikTok that there is a menu hack for a chicken, a fried chicken sandwich at In and Out, which you know is clearly not in the fried chicken wars. Um, the chain has not commented, but that's so so interesting to think that. Maybe they're testing it out somewhere, though it's still unsure if it's even part of it. But I've never been to In-N-Out either, though I'd love to. Mm. What if they paid that influencer on TikTok to like sneak that out there and that is their marketing? I mean, honestly, that's really smart if they did that, which is like let it go viral on TikTok and then let's not pay a dime basically outside of that. So who knows? I like In-N-Out. Look, I've I've had In-N-Out a handful of times. Those of us on the East Coast are not blessed with being able to go there all the time. But I, I think of In-N-Out, what I thought of Shake Shack. I love the, you know, look, this is not to rag, rag on those companies as far as leadership, great run organizations. I, I just think their burgers are really good. And I think you New Yorkers got so obsessed with Shake Shack and Californians get so obsessed with In-N-Out that it becomes about more than the taste of the food. So there, I've made my piece. Those of us in the South who can't have either, we can just sit on the sidelines and let y'all argue over it. I mean, they're good burgers, but I'm not standing sure. in line for them. Okay, I have a really important question to ask you, Brett. Mm -hmm. What food would you stand in line for? I might stand in line for this Thai dish of um, honey roasted duck 
which they oh. serve with uh, kind of sweet soy sauce and young ginger. And it's, that's good. That and sounds good. I don't know where you can have a good one in America. It's possible, but that's when I lived in Bangkok, we would get Bet Yang Nam Pung, which is honey roasted duck in time. Okay. Well, restaurants out there, you're hearing it now. <laughs> this is what gets Brett Thorne to stand in line for food. Go to New York, set up a little pop up, and you'll have at least one person in line. <laughs> Standing there. Yeah. And I'm a food guy, and I, I can't think of food that's life changing in that way. Maybe I'm old and jaded. Maybe maybe I've been broken. Maybe I've had so much good food that now I'm like, whatever. Wow. Now that we got to the Brett is jaded part of this podcast, Holly, let's jump into headlines. Oh, right. <laughs> Time to get to Brett is jaded. That usually happens much quicker. <laughs> I'm trying to be positive. <laughs> well, we have a lot of negative news, but I could start with the positive stuff first. Um, so a lot of brands rebranded. Uh, Recently, within the past, I'd say two months, we have a lot of them, Sweet Green, Papa Murphy's, Moe's Southwest Grill, uh, Pressed Juiceries, now Pressed. Um, what do you guys think is causing this big deluge of brands that are deciding to either change names or have new logos? I mean, during COVID, we saw a bunch of store redesigns that were obviously out of necessity, a lot of off-premises locations. But now we're just seeing people upend the brand and change the things that we know about it. I mean, what do you think is causing that? Sam, you could start. I think I think that, you know, this is a season of transition, right? I mean, this is we, we did see all of those new new prototypes last year, which was of course driven by the pandemic and all the very quick shifts in consumer behavior. But um, you know, now it's been over a year, so uh, brands had their opportunity to do the quick fix, but I think broadly speaking, I'm sure a lot of the companies do see this as well. You know, it's it's we, we're we're transitioning. We are we are emerging from the pandemic. It's time for a fresh coat of paint. It's time to, uh, you know, it's time to tap into some new energy and leave the past behind us. That that that's the best I can think of it. And and probably too, you know, there there are these um, there's sort of the I don't, I don't want to call it me too. I, uh, but like you know, if if you see a lot of brands doing it, you want to jump on and and kind of capture that same momentum that's going on there. And so I, there's probably some of that going on right now. But um. Yeah, I think if you want to position your brand for the future and you want to um, try to imagine what the post-pandemic version of Pressed and Sweet Green and Papa Murphy's looks like, like now is the time to do it because presumably, barring any further surges in this uh, pandemic, we are going to be um, we're going to be in a season of growth again. So you got to get ahead of it. Yeah, and and you know the during the pandemic. I know a lot of restaurants were, were busy, but it was also a, a, a time of self-reflection and thinking about what, what does all of this mean? I know I was sitting in my apartment for 13 months thinking about, you know, what, why am I here? What is life? What is my purpose? And restaurants on a, on a broader scale had to do the same thing. You know, a lot of them had to furlough or lay off their employees. They had to reconceptualize what they were doing during the pandemic and and I think they learned things that they can uh, bring forward as as we emerge from the pandemic and that often means a rebranding or a, a redesign or in some cases uh filing for an IPO yes That's there's right. a lot of that going on too 
There's a Very lot trendy. going on, including one of the people who rebranded Sweetgreen is filing for an IPO. And then Portillo's just announced their IPO. I mean, what's up with all of this, all of the IPO filings? It, it feels like there's a lot all at once. I don't, is that pent up demand from the pandemic? I think that's a similar thing where it's like, uh, you know, clearly some companies saw um, an appetite from investors. And if you see three or four other restaurant companies jumping in and and, you know, capturing the attention of investors, you probably if you've been thinking about it for a while, you probably want to ride those coattails a little bit and jump into, you know, I, I think, too, about the the SPAC trend of last year that's kind of going on still and don't ask me for details on what all of those are about because i'm still trying to figure it out in my head but you know similarly it was like there 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 is a tension on this right now and you got to strike while while the iron is hot and i think back to maybe it was 2018 i remember there was a season when i restaurant ipos were really hot back then too and and it just felt like everybody was jumping in now I, I'm not a CFO of a major restaurant company, but I can tell you, I if I remember correctly, not all of those went very well. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's not for everybody. But if it is something you've been thinking about for a while, and you think about Portillos and the kind of numbers they put up, I mean, the kind of potential they have, financially speaking, makes a ton of sense. Sweet Green, I think we all kind of saw this was going to happen eventually. It was like they they've been gearing up for it for about a decade didn't surprise me. Um, so yeah, I, some of these companies, I think it's like, this is clearly the next phase in growth for them. And then sometimes for other companies, it's like, okay, well, uh, the appetite is there. So I got to jump in right now. And the stock market's doing relatively well most of the time, not every day. And so it's, it's a good opportunity. The SPAC thing is weird because it's what from what I understand, I mean, I'm a food writer, but from what I understand, it's it's how you orchestrate what is often called a backdoor listing, where you create a company and then that company buys another company and then the company is public. And it confuses me that people think that's a, a good idea. Like, sure, here's my money. Go pick a company. And and the way that the, the, they're structured, from what I understand, is if you disagree with the choice of company, you can get your money back. But it still seems so such a convoluted way to to get a company listed hey i mean there are clearly much smarter financial minds than the three of us out there and uh and if you can make it work for your company by all means go for it but that was a brilliant transition sorry to cut you off brett but that was a great transition yeah, into, uh talking about third-party delivery uh which has been which went sort of wild at the beginning of the pandemic and then was very heavily regulated uh and now, just what late on Friday night, Uber Eats and Grubhub uh, decided to sue the city of San Francisco over its permanent fee cap of 15%. And I think they're one of the only cities that actually has made the fee cap permanent. But so they were regulated and then they fought against it. And it almost seems like these third party apps are making California their fighting ground. They they fought to not have labors last year, to not have unions last year, and and they're not uh giving the workers all the benefits and California is really where they're starting their journey to stop uh, treating their workers like people a lot of the times and to charge restaurants more. I mean, do we think that this is going to be the new normal that that these fees are going to stay or that the companies are going to just end up having enough money to lobby against the fees? Well, you know, there are a lot of 
new solutions to the what is now traditional third-party delivery. There are smaller delivery companies coming up. There are, are restaurants that are, I mean, here in New York, restaurants have always delivered their own food, but there are more of them that are, are figuring out economically what works better because it's not cheap to deliver food yourself either you need to hire the drivers you need to insure them you need to to take care of them it, it's it means that a 20 to 30 percent charge although it looks bad on paper to to some chefs and restaurateurs that i've spoken to have they've said that's pretty much what it costs for us to deliver the food ourselves but they're finding ways to avoid the fees i was talking to a a restaurant in New Jersey that was simply offering customers a 10% discount if they ordered delivery from their website instead of from an app. And and so there a lot of it is, is in play. Delivery is not going to go away. There's going to be a lot more demand for it, but the economics have to work for everybody or it's not sustainable. So restaurants and delivery companies are going to have to figure out how to make it work. Whether that yeah. involves like uh, legislative involvement or not, I don't know. Well, so yeah. Sam, we're in a place that's not that you need to drive a lot. I mean, Brett and I are in New York City. We we have a luxury of being able to walk a lot more places. What is what has your experience been during the pandemic? Yeah, I live in a very unluxurious place. Um, unfortunately, it's it's quite quite terrible. You know, I I don't think we don't have nearly the volume uh, here as what you guys do there. I, I think for a lot of restaurants uh, around me here in suburban North Carolina are, um, you know, it's a nice to have, but it's not the survival tactic that it is for in in a lot of um, major cities. And and for so all of us have cars, and so we are all willing to. I mean, I will sp say for myself. Um, I use the third party delivery very rarely because most of the restaurants that I want to eat from are within two miles of me. And if I'm paying $10 to not drive two miles, I'm doing it wrong. I actually literally had this experience last year where I wanted donuts. My kids wanted donuts and we, I was for whatever reason, I thought eh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get this on delivery. And it was going to be twice as much as the donuts in the delivery fee. <laughs> so I think in, in su the suburbs, the delivery conversation is a lot different because again, there's just so much more willingness for people to get out and drive to a place and pick it up. And by the way, curbside drive through the off-premises conversation having changed as much as it have, there's a lot more op opportunities out there for the restaurant operator than the third-party delivery. That all said, you know, I think it's important to recognize that the third-party delivery was really a lifeline for so many restaurants. And for as dastardly as they can sometimes come across, you know, where would this industry be without third-party delivery, considering what we went through in the last year and a half? Um, but it, it does have to settle out. It's got to, there has got to be this, to Brett's point, we've got to figure out how to make it financially feasible for restaurants that are already operating on on thin margins i think i think um delivery co-ops will be come um more of a thing um i i you know i think the in-house delivery is always going to be limited because of the cost associated you know certainly automation and robots will be a part of the conversation eventually but I with the with the um, the cost piece of that being um, sort of prohibitively high, I'm not sure that's going to be in the cards for especially independent restaurant operators or or small time businesses. So, well, you know, we're sorting out what this all looks like in the future, and obviously the battlegrounds of the big cities in California, which of course California being a state where 
very much more regulatory, um, a lot more rules in place. Um, and so I think that's their natural battlegrounds. And those companies are based out there too. So um, so it's interesting because I think as we watch what happens in San Francisco and what happens in New York, we'll have implications for the rest of the country and how these um, businesses operate. But for the most part, um, I think there is sort of a, um, a, a, an equilibrium that we have probably settled into already over the last year that will continue to sort of have flare-ups in, um, you know, individual corners of the market. Yeah, I was talking to a restaurant in New York for our uh, upcoming off-premises report that's in our August print feature. Just a little plug there. Um, nice plug, got it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I've worked very hard on it. Um, uh, but they were saying that 20% is actually the the amount that they think is perfectly reasonable. That they that, So New York City is a 20% fee. Uh, that's the cap, 15% plus 5% for fees. And he said that I, that amount is perfectly reasonable to me. Um, he said that is the amount that I think that their services are worth, that it's worth to be on a marketplace like that, that it's worth to have the marketing help. And, you know, there are places like Lunchbox and Olo who are doing a lot of these other things. But um, it's tough for some brands to give up that six months that it takes for some of these things to work. And that that's a gamble that you have to take, which, you know, during COVID wasn't a gamble somebody could take. Maybe in the next six months, people will see a lot more of that. It has to do some too with volume and average check. And, you know, I mean, and, and think about 20% in New York is, is, a, is a much bigger chunk than a 20% in North Carolina. I mean, just purely by the cost associated. And so, um, so yeah, I think, I think that it's, um, if you can find a number that is reasonable, I do know a lot of restaurant operators that when they listen to this um, argument about third-party delivery, they say, I don't really, it, it doesn't, doesn't bother me because I think they understand they've made that cost, um, the cost structure work for their business. And if you can get to that place, um, then then that's good. But I do think some of the smaller, it's the independents probably who are going to have to struggle with finding that equilibrium. What a great way to finish off this conversation. But before I let you guys go, um, we are going to have your interview with Quinn Adkins of Culver's, Brett, coming up next. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what we can expect from the interview? Yeah, I talked with Quinn about a bunch of things, about, you know, how he and his team manage supply chain. They they do a fresh, never frozen beef product and have, you know, insane standards that they have to keep in terms of shelf life. And they managed to do that throughout the pandemic, which is, well, we're still in the pandemic, but they've, they've continued to manage to do that during the height of the supply chain troubles. Uh, but we also talk about how he continued to create new menu items while not gumming up the works of the franchisees at the 800 or so restaurants that Culver's has now. And a lot of that, they've just brought back their Pretzel House Pub Burger, which they have they launched years ago. I don't know, three, four years ago. And they keep bringing it back because it's popular and they already know how to do it. And they've made uh, their Pretzel Bites, very easy thing to implement a... a uh, permanent item. They've come out with some new custard flavors where they just take things that they already have in house and they mix them up differently. So uh, he has a lot of insights into how to uh, keep moving forward and innovating even during difficult times with short staff and a lot of stress. So I think it will be very uh, educational and fun. It's great. And we just want to make sure that everybody checks out our snapshots of success that we released this week. So we uh, let out Bonchon on Tuesday, let out to the public. And then Friday, we are releasing Bubba Koo's Burritos. So 
definitely be sure to check both of those out. Brett did the Bubba Coos burrito interview. So I did good time. Uh, so thank you so much. And now here's Brett's interview. A quick word from the sponsor of this episode, Belgioso Cheese, before we get you back to the interview. Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheese making, using only natural ingredients and fresh local Wisconsin milk. Master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. And now, back to the pod. Uh, Quinn Atkins, it is so nice to see you. You've shaved. I did. This is what happens when I'm left unsupervised in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, I've I've experimented with facial hair too. I have a more pointy goatee now than I ever have in the past. So that's that's a change for me. Exceptionally distinguished. Well, thank you, thank you, Quinn. Uh, so you have been at Culver's. The last time I saw you was I think in 2019. We visited you guys in your Prairie du Sac headquarters. Um, and, uh, a lot's happened since then, but you've, you've been at Culver's for how long? 800 years? Just, just almost. So it was, uh, six years as of June 1st of this year. And what were you doing before then? So prior to that, I was with a, uh, a regional restaurant brand out of Michigan, uh, still in the menu innovation arena. Um, I've kind of, that's been my primary focus for the last 14 years. Um, but definitely the, the last six years with Culver's has been, you know, just some of the most rewarding and energizing of my entire career. So I, I really couldn't be happier. How come? What's so great about Culver's? You know, chefs, always want to engage with with organizations and brands that align with their kind of personal and food philosophies and i believe that culver's really represents a a dedication to to quality and and you know all restaurant brands pay lip service to that but just in my doing my diligence as I was considering this, this, this opportunity. And then really every day that I've been here for the past six years, we don't just pay lip service. We really walk that talk and we don't compromise on, on the quality of the ingredients that we, we offer to our guests in every restaurant every single day. And that's, I don't say that lightly, and I also never take that for granted because I certainly recognize that that is not the norm in our industry. So uh, what are some examples of the, the quality that you pay attention to? Obviously, your signature item is the butter burger. So yeah. I, I guess you pay a lot of attention to the beef that you, that you get. Very much so. So I guess uh, an example of that around our our beef. So we serve a fresh, never frozen beef, um, beef product that is a, uh, a custom grind and a custom blend. So uh, our guests can only experience that at Culver's. But 
because it's a fresh product, we have to carefully monitor and maintain that, that supply chain and that in, in our distribution network. And we have one of the most aggressive and restrictive shelf lives for our fresh beef that is well beyond the industry norm. So say for example, the average industry norm for a fresh beef product vacuum sealed is 19 days. We insist on a 15 day shelf life. So even though it requires a lot more work and a lot more management of the, the supply chain and the distribution network, we believe that that extra effort is worth it to ensure that our guests are receiving a, a fresh quality product. And how many Clover's locations are there? So we actually just opened um, or crossed over the 800 restaurant mark uh, two weeks ago. And they're mostly franchised, right? All franchised, mostly franchised. 99% franchised, yes. So how, I mean, that's hard to manage during the best of times, uh, supply chain, making sure that that beef obviously always stays within the cold chain and gets where it needs to be and is used within 15 days. And then we had all of these uh, supply disruptions during the pandemic. So how did you guys deal with that? Um, we have superhuman heroes that manage our categories and our supply chain management team. And, and I really don't know how else to say it other than that. They, I believe they are the unsung heroes in our industry of, of the last you know, 18 months. And continuing to this day, the, the micro and macro crises that they have to manage on a daily basis and they, they pour their hearts into ensuring that the groceries are delivered and that if we have to explore contingency options that as much as humanly possible that they meet or exceed our existing standards and i'm it's 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 really it's hard to believe the statement that i'm about to say but even in the worst of the days in the early days and early months of the pandemic we never had to compromise to us to a point where we weren't comfortable and that is solely the result of not only the superhuman efforts from our supply chain folks but also the nature of the relationships that we have engendered with our our supplier network over many many years of being in business when community has always been an important part of Culver's, they're very much a Wisconsin company. You use a lot of Wisconsin cheese. I don't know how Wisconsin has cheese for anybody else. You guys use so much Wisconsin cheese. Um, a lot. There's a lot of a lot of cheese in Wisconsin, and we're 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 very proud of our of our home state, and it, you know, and it goes well beyond just you know the our close association with with the, the dairy industry. But that, that spirit of hospitality that is just critical, mission critical to the success of our brand and 
how our restaurants treat our guests really stems from that kind of that Midwest sensibility and the approach of making not just our guests, but also our team members feel like they are part of that community and part of that, that extended family really, I believe is one of our most important differentiators. When you're, you're bringing back a, a very sort of Wisconsin focused menu item, the, the pretzel house pub burger, right? Yes, actually, that, that is our, our summer campaign, LTO, this year, and this will be the third time that it has, uh, it has come back, and very excited about it. It, it. it was inspired, really, by some of the flavors and ingredients of that, you know, em, embody Wisconsin. And it was just kind of one of those sandwiches that really kind of built itself um, when you kind of we started laying out and thinking about the, the different builds and the ingredients that we wanted to showcase. Um, not very many examples of that in my career where once we had really the core ingredients identified and tasted that first version that we were like, whoa, we don't, there's not really anything we need, we need to do to this. So it was, it was pretty, pretty cool uh, epiphany moment. And we knew we had something special. And you also have pretzel bites, which I think you guys first introduced in 2018 and now they're a permanent addition. Is that from yeah. the same pretzel maker or a different pretzel maker? It is the same. It is the same. Uh, the same bakery company uh, providing both products, and you know we don't add core menu items very often because our our menu is so diverse already, and you know we actually kind of set out to prove that this didn't make sense to to, to uh, add to our core menu. And we've tested it multiple times and brought it back multiple times. And every time we brought it back, we would see at least double digit incremental growth. And what was even more interesting is that the sales that it brought to the bottom line were largely incremental. So we saw no cannibalization or erosion of our core sides. So we kind of disproved ourselves, our own hypothesis that this wouldn't make sense to add to our lineup. But, and, and we heard loud and clear from our franchisees and most importantly, our guests that this was something that they would, they would like to see permanently. So, um, and you also now have a veggie burger, right? That was rolled out uh, in September, I think. It was rolled out, yes. Uh, the, the Harvest Veggie Burger was a, a multi-year labor of love for um, my team and, and our brand in general. And it, it was a very much a specific and deliberate strategy on, on the part of our organization that we were not going 
to engage in the meat analog category. And, and we had already been working on this product in 2016 and 2017 when the analogs kind of exploded across the industry. And, you know, certainly had some challenges from our, our system of operators saying, you know, our guests are telling us that they want, you know, these, uh, these analog products. And we decided that we were not going to pursue that avenue simply because we believe that in, in those kind of signature and unique to Culver's experiences. And looking back, I, I believe we truly made the right decision because of the those products are almost approaching uh, saturation in in the industry. And now the guests can get the exact same product at their local grocery store for a fraction of the price mm -hmm. that, you know, the restaurants were having to charge. So, um, you know, there's certainly more work to be done in kind of the, the plant forward and the plant-based category for us. And we recognize that it is rapidly becoming table stakes for many guests. It's, it's interesting, the whole, a, a lot of the meat analogs are being served on pizza or, you know, cheesy pizzas served elsewhere where there are animal products. So it's, it's not for a, a vegan market primarily. It's for people, as you said, who want to eat less meat for whatever reason. And, uh. And they might eat meat all the time, but today don't feel like having it. Well, and you guys also have a whole bunch of uh, of uh, concrete mixers made out of your frozen custard. You have two new ones, a sal salted caramel pecan pie and a strawberry chocolate parfait that you're rolling out, right? Yeah, those are our new flavors of the day for this year. And they certainly can be made into, into concrete mixers. That's one of the, the great things about our menu is that, that that customization piece, um, but those two custard flavors were, um, they were an opportunity to introduce some line extensions in our toppings and inclusions. And, um, you know, one of the places that I lived in my Midwest journey over the course of my life was St. Louis. And St. Louis has it be their kind of regional dessert specialty, the gooey butter cake. And pretty early on in my, my tenure with Culver's, I, I intuitively grasped that we serve the butter burger and it makes perfect sense that we have the butter cake as part of our, of our menu lineup. So uh, I've spent quite a bit of time finding and sourcing the the very best product that you know would also stand up to our 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 custard and what what I was pleasantly surprised to find and you know because it makes it a challenge is our custard has so much flavor and is so rich that a lot of ingredients just get lost in that flavor profile. And 
So you really have to find something extraordinary that can stand on its own in that carrier, that medium. Um, and one of the, the great thrills and most enjoyable aspects of, of, uh, of my position and, and for my team is finding those ingredients and those flavor combinations that where the, the, the sum is, uh, the total is much more than the sum of all its parts. Mm-hmm. And these two flavors are very much examples of that. So the salted caramel pecan pie is our vanilla, fresh frozen custard, uh, a ribbon of salted caramel, roasted salted pecans, and these a new butter cake pieces. Just, um, just extraordinary. So the obviously the butter cake piece acts as kind of the, the pie crust, but it also adds a little bit of savory, a very, very nice pairing with the, the salted caramel and the richness of the frozen custard. It's, it, it's definitely a, uh, a home run flavor. And then the strawberry, uh, chocolate strawberry parfait is another utilization of our chocolate cake piece that we introduced two years ago now. And, you know, it's a classic combination of flavors, but the richness of the fresh frozen custard and the, the, the dark deep chocolate of the chocolate cake piece with the beautiful acidity and freshness of our fresh strawberry topping it's uh, it, it when we tested this, these both performed just exceptionally well with our our consumer panels as well as internally. And so these are new custards of the day, which each each location gets to pick, right? And then they can promote yes. it on their social media, or whatever. And then that can be a driving reason for people to drive up to the Culver's that day because you have their favorite customers. Yeah, we talk about, you know, that kind of that, that, that U-turn <laughs> phenomenon <laughs> where they see the flavor on the marquee sign and they, you know, they, they, they pull a Yui to, to, to turn back around. Um, and yes, every restaurant kind of plans their own flavor of the day calendar. When we introduce new flavors, we coordinate with our restaurants to ensure that they're offering it uh, several times in the, the first month of launch, and then at least once a month for the following year, just to make sure that our guests have an opportunity to experience it and start build some building some loyalty around around the new flavors. Well, it sounds like that's you know a lot of the the menu introductions that you've done recently are things that were not going to be heavy lifts for the restaurants. They already knew how to do pretzel bites, making them permanent just meant more money. You're bringing back the pretzel bacon cheeseburger, which, or the pretzel house, sorry, that's a Wendy's product, the pretzel house pub burger. Yeah, that's what it is. You're bringing that back. And then these new concrete flavor, custard, excuse me, flavors, of the day are taking things you already have and mixing them up differently. So yes, that, that is absolutely. And, and again, looking for those menu efficiencies, those cross utilization opportunities to um, introduce the, the new news and the, those menu innovation opportunities that do not present 
any sort of, uh, you know, excessively complex new processes that the restaurants have to incorporate into their, their daily routine. While still keeping your customers engaged. Absolutely. Well, great. Uh, Quinn Atkins, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I hope we get to do it in real life soon. Brett, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I look forward to seeing you face-to-face soon. I think that's going to happen. Thank you so much, sir. Take care.